Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. It is Bruce from Printavo. Thank you so much for being able to listen again to another episode. We've got Mr. Scott Garnett out of King's Green from Roanoke, Virginia. Did I say Roanoke correctly at least? You did. Yeah, you did. All right, sweet. That's good. You guys have a lot of positive reviews, 66 five-star reviews on Google pages. How, how did you do that? Just by asking people? Uh, mostly not. Uh, to be honest, we don't put a lot of effort into Google or uh, especially reviews. Uh, we actually mm. keep our reviews disabled on Facebook. Uh, I've got a lot of strong opinions about review culture that are mostly uh, Ooh, negative like reviews of the review culture. Uh, uh, I just okay. think it's... Um, I, I think it tends to be a little fake, phony, forced, um, for that reason. Like you're you're just asking people to to praise you, or the reverse is someone's going online just to to trash talk you, or to intentionally or or even maliciously try and uh, put your company down. Um, sure. And and at this point in the internet culture. I'm I'm not a strong believer that reviews really make that much of a difference. I mean, it looks good when somebody's searching you on the internet, but I don't believe that many people are actually going through and reviewing the reviews and actually understanding where they're coming from. I mean, you can go on companies' websites and see they're giving themselves five stars. Yeah, or, I see that too. You Looking know, for a home uh, like contractor yeah. and things. I'll be like this. How does this review the last name is the same person as the person I just talked yeah, exactly. to? Exactly. Company. And then on the other side of that spectrum, you have absolutely no control. Like Yelp and Google are the worst offenders, of course, because anybody can go on any company's page and give them a one star for any reason, and businesses have no recourse besides to publicly respond. And so, you know, I, you even see companies that get a one-star review and it's not even the right company that they're reviewing. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I hear reviews, that, I, you know, I kind of take I think it with that, a grain of salt. It is what it but is. But what do you think though about the fact that it is a reality that people do just check it? Like if they haven't dealt with you, if they haven't come through a, a referral of somebody who talked about you highly and they're doing a little bit of research there is just a quick judgment of a business, a restaurant, or whatever it is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it can have an effect. I think it depends on the company and the industry as a whole. I mean, I don't, I don't know if companies, big, large companies, what difference does a review really make in the long run? I don't think a lot of decision making is truly made on reviews. That's my opinion. Sure. Sure. I think that's fair. I think on SMBs, though, it's uh, like small businesses. <clears throat> it is a little bit tricky because there may not be a brand there yet. Like there's no Starbucks name that it's just it is what it is, even if it has two star reviews. Uh, I can see that point. Yeah. I think more importantly, it's going to probably be more associated with the SEO aspect and just your presence, because obviously... Mm -hmm. If the more reviews you have, the higher you're going to rank in Google searches. And I guess my point is, if if you're searching just something generic, just screen printing in your town, and there's, let's say, five shops, and one shop has 300 five-star reviews, 
and then the other one has seven five-star reviews they might both be five-star shops no one's going and and going through those reviews and reading the reviews if anything they might click on the shop that has a one-star review just so they can get the dirt because people love gossip and people love bad stories you always love you always love uh, scrolling through to see which one was the why was it the the one negative? I know I do it too. So I think I mean obvi- I I think yeah, that, that reviews are important, obviously for SEO and and online presence purposes. Uh, we specifically just right. don't put much of any effort into that anymore. But we're also a fifteen year old company, so we have an established clientele. We have. Uh, uh, we're not really seeking the business that is just going to find us in a generic Google search. That doesn't really fit our, our model at this point. Who's your ideal customer? Our ideal customer is our existing customers. Uh, we switched to an 80-20 model about two months ago. Uh, I've been very interested in 80-20 for, for a long time. Uh, but really mm-hmm. started to dive into it deep recently and uh, about two months ago, really started to take it very, very seriously and catering really strongly to our top 20% clientele. Um, and that's been probably the biggest game changer that we've had in the history of this company so far. Really? Because once we well, stop so explain, kind of saying sorry, yes. Explain that though too. So like just, just how you got to that, what is it, all that? So the 80-20 principle is the concept that uh, 80% of results are due to 20% of um, causes. And in the business mm-hmm. sense, it's you, you can kind of distill it down to 80% of your revenue comes from 20% of your clientele, your, your top 20%. So if you take a look at your client list, you take a look at your numbers, your books, who, who's your top 20% clientele, <clears throat> clientele, and cater to them almost exclusively, and, and then on a tiered scale, kind of uh, not totally turn away everything under that, but really taper off who you're catering to and who you're really dedicating your time and effort to. Mm-hmm. the benefit is much, much greater. So once we switched to that model and we started just catering almost exclusively to our top 20 clientele, they end up actually doing more business with us. And we're saying no to a lot of work that just doesn't fit our business model and then has a tendency to clog up our pipeline. Um, you know, we were guilty in the past of either bumping an existing or, or long-term customer in lieu of kind of a flash in the pan or that one person that walks in that needs a hundred shirts, but they need them in three days and we're trying to save the day. When in reality, that's going to cause more problems than it's worth. Um, the, the perfect example, our, our proof of concept for this was we print for uh, a, a pretty well-known surf shop and mm-hmm. Per season, they on average do about four orders with us. And that starts around March of every year. And so this year, we really started to investigate the 80-20 concept. 
And so we just made a conscious decision and we're extremely mindful when, when orders came through from this surf shop, we're going to just pull out of the stops. We're going to give them the fastest turnaround. We're going to make sure that they have their, their proofs and artwork. Everything's done immediately, basically mm -hmm. putting in almost all of our effort into this job to completion before we're juggling any other work that's coming in. And right. in doing so, what we learned is the faster that we were able to get them merchandise, the faster, of course, then they were able to sell it. And then they're back to order more stuff. So we've printed for them for almost a decade now. And like I said, on average, they're ordering about four uh, decent sized orders per season until this season. In 2021, they, they did six. And so that was our proof of concept. If we give better service to our top 20 clientele, then our top 20 clientele actually has a tendency to increase their volume. And also they love us even more. So when sure. you think about- was that, Go ahead. Were those extra two seasons from other shops that they were working with or that was just from the growth that they're experiencing? It was the growth that they are experiencing because it, in, in many it. of the cases uh, in previous summers, uh, they're waiting on us to get them merch to sell because they, they might completely sell out on say like 4th of July weekend or Memorial day weekend. And then they're, they're waiting on orders that they have existing in our pipeline. But the faster we were able to get them merchandise, the faster they were able to sell it and then come back to, to replenish their stock. So that's what led to the additional orders throughout the season this year. Right. That makes sense. You know, um, you talked about Clubhouse, actually. You guys hit me up. I, I get the pings on Monday morning sometimes. You guys run a really cool one at, uh, what is it, 9 a.m., 10 a.m.? It's 11 a.m. Eastern. 11 a.m. Eastern. Okay. Of which I highly recommend if you guys are available to join that Clubhouse. I think it's called Lean Screen Printing. Uh, yeah. And you guys can just have chats and just talk about everything that's happening. I love the audio on Clubhouse because it's so much more like you're sitting around a, a table and hanging out. Um, all of the time is always tricky for me. I feel like I always have a meeting, but I join randomly when I can. Uh, so that was just a quick shout out. Um, do you think that with this rule, have you been able to also adjust pricing if you've had to within the last year with all of your other consumables and uh, pricing change? We haven't done that in intentionally. We've had to do it out of necessity. Um, especially with blank goods, with prices changing almost constantly at this point. Uh, How'd that go when you, when you did it? And how often have you done it? So we've only done it once so far this year. Uh, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, probably in the next month or two, there will, it will be a necessity to do it again. Uh, it's my understanding that, it, that the early October is, is when a lot of new pricing from the mills is going to be released um next level especially has a a, a big price increase announcement that's yeah, supposed to be like october 1st so maybe it will be something we can absorb but maybe not so we're kind of gonna have to kind of wait and see but with some of our larger clientele um 
we just did one this this week actually where we quoted it pretty significantly higher than previous years that we've done it and there was absolutely no question they, Would you they say didn't even bat an eye? You said a lot higher. Are we talking roughly five percent, fifteen percent? What it was? It was actually a thirty percent increase. Okay, so what was your feeling then afterwards? Terror. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so prior to prior to sending that quote, um, I basically had to take a lot of deep breaths, yeah, and and really actually come to terms with being okay with them rejecting it and, and us job. just not getting the job this year because it's a, it's a bid job every year. Mm. We've, we've done it four years in a row. So we do have an advantage of, um, of having the, the history with them. So this, this would be our, our fourth year. Um, and they actually, this morning they, they approved the quote. So um, we will be doing it this fourth year, but, it's it it was scary because sure. it was such a higher number than previous years uh the downside of that of course is then then that's when your gambler's brain sets in and you're like wait a minute have i been undercharging 30 percent for the last four years uh or i think kind of the the nature of of the world right now i think everyone is just expecting it yeah, everyone's expecting because it's almost like your opportunity to get ahead of it or use right. it as an opportunity to get ahead of it. Yeah, and also establish that precedent. Now, uh, we've also with our social media, especially Instagram stories, we have we've pretty consistently been posting about you know a screenshot of a news story of container ship issues, port issues, price increases in in. Um, ocean shipments and sure, container shortages, and, stuff, yeah. and so we're kind of we're we're putting that information out there for people who follow us to really see this isn't arbitrary. We're we're not just like making up this percentage uh, of a price increase because I just want to make thirty percent more money. It's it's there's a lot of math that actually has to go into it to calculate to make sure that your your profit margins stay the same while uh, being able to cover the increases that that as a business owner you will have to incur because every, yeah. everything is going through the roof right now. I think regardless of even all the supply chain woes and price increases of, of, of consumables and our cost of goods, uh, we still before that had a ton of self-doubt about our pricing. Like hundred percent for us as a software company for use a, a shop for, you know, a coffee shop down the street. Like I'm sure every single person I remember back freelancing doing just, you know, a lot of UI UX design is the same thing. Like I'd send off a quote or I, no, no, I'd write it up. I think about it like, Oh gosh, this is, this is too high, you know? And you know, you almost, you literally negotiate yourself down before it, <laughs> the customer even sees it. Yeah. Uh, but, gosh, it's such a bad practice. It is, 100%. And, you know, there's a huge issue that, that I see and have seen for years in our industry, which is, which is the race to the bottom, where there is just 
there has been this arbitrary nickel and diming where the next shop down the street will just take your price and knock 25 cents off of it just to get a job. But they're not using any data to support their pricing. Uh, There's so many companies that, that generate their pricing matrix that's based off of other people's companies. And it's not based off of what their actual overhead and profit margins need to be to continue to exist as a company. And I, I think that the hard lesson that was learned in 2020 was the shops that didn't know their numbers and didn't know how to pivot correctly are the ones that got in the biggest trouble the fastest. And I think that we're seeing that now in reverse with the larger companies because they're flying at the seat of their pants most of the time. And shops like us where we have the data and we are are very lean we are a lean company and i don't like flying off the seat of my pants anymore because mm-hmm. it's too scary it keeps me up at night i got two kids and a wife and right i, I can't just wing it anymore and hope that how, it works out how how did you get to a point where you felt like you were pricing profitably because you know we started our shop and i did exactly that i mean i literally got the the shop down the streets pricing matrix and said okay this is basically ours so for us our original pricing matrix the way that we came up with it is i went on google and i googled screen printing price list and actually did a a google image search and i downloaded and printed out 50 or 60 screen printing price lists that were on Google images at the time. This is 2008, yeah, 2009, something like that. Yeah. And downloaded every single one I could find for pretty much all of, all of the U.S. And I meticulously went through all of them and created a price list that was a, a literal national average of what I had discovered on Google images. And then I subtracted 5% from that pricing so that in my mind at the time, I'm like, I'm going to be 5% cheaper than the national average. But that's a totally ridiculous way to create pricing because it was not based on my business whatsoever. It didn't, it didn't reflect what my overhead was. Uh, It didn't reflect any type of scaling or profitability whatsoever. It was just, it was totally arbitrary and it, and worse, it was completely based on other companies and how they operated. And some of these price lists could be from uh, anywhere from the guy who's printing shirts in his garage to a shop that has seven or eight automatics. So there's no way that any of that would be directly relatable totally. to how my company was operating at the right. time. So that, it, it wasn't until switch, we... The, the switch was when we started actually collecting the data and actually well, like a knowing time study or like so because it is tricky right because you know depending on your volume your overhead your uh yeah how did you go about that process so the first thing we first thing we did is figured out what our actual true overhead was knowing sitting down and just doing the math having your books correct having your PL correct and up to date and then tracking everything that a lot of people don't track. 
how many screens can you coat with a gallon of emulsion? What is what is the true cost to expose one screen? The Based actual on your number. True overhead. Right. Based of, on the true the overhead of how you do it. Do you have an autocoder? Mm-hmm. Do you have a CTS? Are you coating everything by hand? How often are you? How many screens do you have in your your cycle? How many screens do you have in your shop? Are right. you is is the overhead? Is the cost of creating one screen higher because you're reclaiming every day because you don't have enough screens in the pipeline to to do it uh, in in any type of batch work or automation is huge? Do you have an auto reclaimer or do you just have a high school kid that comes in one day a week or one day a month or is it you? But how do you take that true cost to apply it to that? Like, obviously, if you said, here's all the money that I spent, excluding cost of goods sold and then are you dividing it by the time spent on the on different areas of that job or or finding right th- th- as this foundation here right so what what we did is we just applied it to the volume that we are doing at the time we're looking at the number of jobs we're doing on a monthly basis and finding the average because got it finding the average of how many total jobs we're doing every day or or on a monthly basis is how we calculated it on average how many screens are we producing on a monthly basis how the the cost of supplies and materials and then labor and then your your main overhead if you're leasing a space or you've got a mortgage on it and then insurance and everything else that comes along with it. How much is your phone? How much is your internet? How much is, uh, how much do you spend on post-it notes every month and figuring out how many dollars are going out. And then you can actually create your pricing off of, well, on an average basis, we're going through X number of screens at a cost and an actual overhead cost of this. So when we do a one color print, that screen depending on how your shop is set up, it, it could it could be $5 is your true cost to expose one screen. When you Got consider it. labor from blank mesh to blank mesh, from blank mesh to coat, film or CTS, exposure, washout, dry time, the, the labor of the person that's doing that, and the electric, the the building that it's in, and so on. When you mm-hmm. calculate that and actually find that number, you you can figure out what it costs to make one screen. So, my guess is that this exposed some flaws in the uh, Google template screen printing matrix theory. Yeah, ma- major flaws because <laughs> at at that point we were just making everything up. Sure. And because largely our pricing was totally based on other shops who were mostly much larger operations than we were at the time. Was the flow from there then to run example jobs and say here, okay, we know our average order volume per month as far as number of jobs. Here's three or four example types of those orders. And then make sure that based on the true cost of running the business that each of those would be profitable if, if it, you know, if you multiplied it out by the total number of jobs a month. Right. You, it just became about keeping track of time mostly. And then even as simple as the, one of the first things we did is we put 
a notebook in the dark room and every time we coded screens we just wrote down the date and how many screens we coded and then we did that until the bucket of emulsion was empty and so we knew this month we coded x number of screens with one gallon of emulsion the cost of emulsion is this that got us this many coded screens and it's very painstaking process and it takes a lot of patience and more so discipline you have to make sure that you're actually doing that and then the next thing was timing jobs how long does it truly take to set up a one color front black ink or one color front white ink and then what about a two color print what about a three color print instead of just arbitrarily saying well a one color prints three dollars and a two color prints three fifty and a three color prints four dollars right well does fifty cents these arbitrary increases does that actually a true is that actual true reflection of what your overhead is and your profit margin is or is that just something you made up and because it makes the math easy to do and we don't have it right now but one of the things that i'm super interested in looking into next is is breakless pricing because i think that's brilliant and figuring out the whatever the math is going to have to be to make that work all right part two of the episode is a uh a review of breakless pricing <laughs> some <laughs> shops i do have have gone to they've definitely created them you know in excel to use to plug in um but that's a really great topic to cover i'm curious king screen scott garnett what is your superpower like what what makes somebody pick you guys over somebody else and a lot of people may say service or our team or something like that and maybe that is but i'm curious if if what, what the secret sauce is i think in most cases at this point it's the ability to navigate people from start to finish i started screen printing in 1994 i started this company in 2006 and i am not a, a business owner who owns a screen printing shop. I am, to my core, a screen printer. I am an enthusiast of screen printing. I am a sponge of all screen printing knowledge. And to the point where it's almost somewhat an obsession. Mm -hmm. And I am not capable of not continuing to absorb information about printing and I think that people feel comfortable using us because of our knowledge bank right because I can I can have a conversation with someone who's never had a, a screen printed shirt made ever and I can have a brief discussion with them about who they are their businesses what the uh, what the intended use of the apparel is going to be and then navigate them through the process from the from the garment to the printing process and i think my experience in screen printing gives me that competitive advantage to be able to almost predict exactly or not even predict but just to know exactly 
what they truly are actually trying to accomplish because got it so you're the expert yeah yeah i, I mean especially to them i mean you sure. know sure right uh hey I, i'm i'm a fitness brand i'm at a gym like what what do we you know okay cool like you are their guide and and being able to compartmentalize every step of the way so let's say for instance you're you're a CrossFit gym or you're a fitness gym. Well, you're not going to want to guild in 2000 right off the bat. You're going to, you know, start, start with the apparel first or start with whatever bullet point you want to start with. Start, let's start with the apparel first. Well, the fitness gym, they don't want a six ounce heavy, hundred percent cotton shirt. They're going to want some type of blend that's going to be four to four and a half ounces at the most at the heaviest and they're hundred percent going to want to blend. Now let's say the next thing is art. If their logo is a big solid white circle, you're not going to do that with Plastisol because that gym is going to hate you every single day that they put that shirt on and try and work out. Now the inverse of that is when Joe's plumbing walks in, that guy 100% does not want a tri blend shirt. <laughs> the guy doesn't Fitted. want a 4.3 ounce uh, tri-blend shirt. Yeah. And and most of those guys, when they walk in and they're your dad's age, and these guys have been getting heavy concrete-based Plastisol prints on 10-ounce T-shirts since mm-hmm. before you were born, A, you're probably not going to be able to sell them on anything else. But B, they also equate that to quote-unquote quality you we you have those customers that outright say i i want to feel the print because right. that that equates quality to them and they do they they want that the weight yeah. or you know something heavy and then also you know clients like that they're going to beat the hell out of those shirts so you give them some lightweight cvc or tri-blend shirt it's not going to last till the end of the workday for these guys. Right. They're going to they're going to destroy them. So I think that's being able to be be the authority, be the expert, be the the industry guide, the liaison to get them to to the to the end goal of what, of what I mean, they're actually looking for. It's interesting that you say that and and especially as you talk about your obsession on the screen printing side, but it is like a sales superpower because they come to you as the advisor, you know, to be able to have those conversations. Yeah. Um do you guys get many sales coming through TikTok? I know you post quite a bit and, and share a lot of stuff there. Uh to my knowledge, we've had zero sales come through TikTok. When when I first set up our TikTok I initially got really excited about it uh, yeah. because one of the first one of the first TikToks we posted was of uh, our T-shirt folder that we built, and I think it's up to like over 1.5 million views or something now. Yeah, so at first oh, it was like super yeah. exciting, and then everything else is like a hundred views. <laughs> and I gotta pull this up here to watch and it. Maybe it's because I'm in my 40s, but. Uh, I'm I'm not exactly sure how to use that as a sales tool. It's more of, in my opinion, I think it's great for this industry. I, I follow more other screen printing shops than anything else. Mm. 
and a lot of like how-to content or um, tutorial type content I think is excellent and that's an excellent platform for that but I just don't I don't know how that would equate to sales at least for us it hasn't but again I think it's just because that's not really the clientele that we're going for Um, sure I don't like whales but I don't like small fish either you know the the real meat on the bone for us is about anywhere from a hundred to a thousand shirts that that's where we like to stay that's that's our the best meat on the bone for us is in that bracket because anything under a hundred shirts of course we do it i mean our, our minimum order is only 24 but uh anything under a hundred shirts we really have to start thinking from a very lean mentality of of how to get that through our pipeline really to get it get those jobs out of the way because there's another job of three to five hundred shirts that's that needs to get on press because we need to turn it and in most cases again back to 80 20 those three to five hundred piece jobs those are going to be our our top 20. got it got it you know um i find it interesting that that you guys actually weren't always located in Virginia. No. And you relocated from Atlanta. Shops are so local driven. Like it, it, it's a huge part of the being in the community. What was that like of transferring locations like that and, and the sales and, and then getting just reset up? Uh, so we started in Atlanta in 2006 uh we established ourselves relatively easily quite honestly um because of the size of the the pond i mean you're just fishing from a a much larger market so it's it's easy to to chisel out a, a slice of the pie to sustain you as a small company uh we were i mean we went through a number of locations but the the last location we were in was in a complex called the metropolitan uh and in that complex is the the next building over is like where danger press was and i think there was one or two other screen printing shops in that same complex with us and no competition i mean atlanta is the type of place where there's just so much business that any screen printer could pop up and and make a go at it and be successful uh we were in atlanta i was total i was in atlanta for a little over 14 years uh we had king screen in atlanta for nine years and towards in 2014 uh i met my now wife in Mm -hmm. roanoke which is where i'm from originally and that was a catalyst so once i met her that's it i'm done with atlanta i'm I'm going to be (laughs) with this this woman and she's amazing that's all i want for my life and everything else became second to that Um, and so what we did is at the time we were we were doing contract printing for uh, rush order tees and we had uh, a decent consistent national clientele and I guess now looking back at it I also realized that I was applying some 80-20 to my planning for relocation uh, we spent, once we made the decision, we're, we're going to relocate. I immediately switched at the, 
at the time I was doing like Google AdWords and, and actually putting money into SEO, I immediately ended all of that. And I very covertly switched it all to Roanoke, Virginia. And we spent a year planning our relocation. Uh, initially, in the first few months, we, were, we met with all of our largest clientele mm-hmm. and explained to them, we are relocating. We, of course, want to retain you as a customer. We're going to uh, initiate free UPS ground shipping. And so there will be little to no change for your account. So you didn't do that. That was shipping back to Atlanta or just to in general? For in general, because once we applied it, we were just that gave us the ability to apply it to every order. Um, again, obviously, it's not free. We just built it into the calculation of our overhead. What do we spend annually on shipping divided by how many jobs we do divided by how many shirts are in those jobs? And you can come up with a, a number to be able to calculate how to offer free shipping. It's not free, but also there's not a line item on the invoice of how much electricity it costs to do the job. Sure. That was our mentality. And so uh, essentially most of our large clientele said, we don't care. You're shipping our stuff anyway. And, and that's how we pitched it. We basically said the only change is going to be the return address on the shipping label. That's it. Yeah. Makes sense. And uh, at the time that we relocated in May of 2015, we had retained over 75% of our existing clientele. They just didn't care that we were somewhere else. They didn't care where our building was. What, and even what was our, the 25%? 25% was mostly small-time customers that, uh, or, or just die-hard Atlanta customers. Got we, it. At the time, we were, we were printing for some like streetwear brands in Atlanta where a big part of it was that you were also in Atlanta. Got it. Okay. So it's difficult to have like this super hyper or, or super hype Atlanta based streetwear line that's printed in Virginia. Right. So that makes sense. But, but also but these like, guys were in, in the grand scheme of things, they were, they were small fish clients. Okay. And that's what I was going to get at is it sounds like that wasn't 75% of the revenue though. It was just 25% Absolutely not. of the customer. Yeah. Yeah. Got Absolutely it. not. And and we, at the time, we approached Rush Order Tees and we said, hey, we want to maintain, we want to keep doing the work for you. So we'd like you to let us keep the, the existing work that's coming in for the Southeast region that, that we were doing work for. And then we would also like you to give us some a piece of the mid-Atlantic work that's coming in because of where we'll be located. Well, one of the best aspects, and this is a major competitive advantage for us now, Roanoke, Virginia is home to a UPS hub. So we have a UPS airport here. And also because Roanoke is a UPS hub, our our one-day ground shipment is basically Pennsylvania to North Florida. It's almost the entire East Coast. Mm. And so that's given us a huge well, competitive advantage right as well. Right. Um, we no longer print for rush order tees, by the way. Uh, we've we've pretty much entirely exited all contract printing uh, again because it just didn't fit our model. What our model so when has did become, that happen? You know, because I've heard quite a few shops that say something similar. Um, was that around the, the same eighty twenty evaluation? Was that before the move? 
or, or I'm sorry, right around the same time of the move? It was about a year after we relocated. And mm-hmm. the biggest catalyst for us was, again, at the time, I, I wasn't consciously aware that I was applying an 80-20. Mm-hmm. But I, I started to realize that I'm filling up my production schedule with these contract jobs for another company that is leading to me being neglectful to my existing clientele that's good clientele that have higher profit margin jobs and it just got to a point where the truth is it just wasn't worth it anymore got it and also it's just it's doing more uh, significantly more work for significantly less money because we we aren't a true contract facility i mean true contract printers you want to talk about data, they know every minute of every day because they have to because they're charging 37 cents a print. <laughs> or they should, rather. I, right. I've seen some... Yeah, it, it's definitely difficult, but I, I have seen that trend as shops get bigger to phase off from a significant portion of contract, if not all, and just move forward that way. Would you go back? Would you change anything with that? Would you take any more or no? Do the same thing again. Contract work? Yeah. I would probably never re-enter contract work. Would you have done it in the first place? If if I had to do it entirely over and I had the knowledge that I have now, yes. Um, it served its purpose for what our company needed in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it allowed us having that consistent paycheck on a monthly basis in the early days brought a lot of confidence and comfort because we knew pretty pretty much we're going to on average we're going to get a check every month that's around this much and it it got to a point where you know that check was covering our lease it was covering a lot of our big overhead expenses uh and so in the early years yeah we i mean we made a million mistakes but also a Companies like that and um, uh, another shop owner, friend of mine, he's he's recently signed on with Custom Inc. And they are so hyper-organized that it's total plug and play. I mean, the work wasn't difficult. The processing wasn't difficult. We were logging into a proprietary CRM that gave us everything on a silver platter. We were just, we just opened the boxes, print it, put it in the boxes, put their their label on it and go out the door so it wasn't the complexity of the work or the disorganization all that stuff is some of the best i've ever seen of course Mm. so for us it was just it was clogging up our production which was making us be neglectful to our existing clientele got it got it 80 20 rule i think we got a title chris i think we got a title for the video uh thanks scott this has been awesome actually i i'd love to even just talk with you i feel like hours and hours more maybe at long <laughs> beach or something or at, uh yeah I'm you hoping. didn't go to atlantic city did you no i didn't no but um maybe maybe at the next show or something like that is there anybody that you're following any books you're reading uh i don't know anything interesting that you could shout out the shirt show book club right now the book is this is not a t-shirt by bobby hundreds it's about okay the hundreds streetwear line yep and uh that book has been really incredible uh his backstory is wildly similar 
to my life story. Uh, he talks about growing up in the 90s and in 90s skateboarding and watching Plan B skate videos on VHS until the tape broke. Like that stuff me and my brother did. Yeah. And then being in punk and hardcore and being a part of, of the straight edge community, which I am, and uh, being vegan and being involved in garage screen printing and even like jungle and drum and bass community, which, you know, my most of my music career is actually in in Braga Jungle drum and bass music. And uh, he talks about that. So it, the, I have really, really resonated with this book in a huge way because it it really mirrors a lot of, of my youth and especially early 20s and being involved in screen printing. And he even talks about some, some smaller streetwear brands out of New York that like I, I have interacted with some of those people like back that's in the day cool. so um that's been a huge one um of course i don't think i can ever talk to anyone in the industry without talking about two second lean mm. two second lean changed everything for me and uh i think really giving it a run for its money is the the 80 the 80 20 principle the those two books two second lean paul acres and and uh, eighty twenty, Richard, um, I forget his last name. Uh, those two books have been major, major game changers. Uh, and then Profit First. I mean, if yeah. if if you haven't read Profit First, a hundred percent do it. I'll tell you, you guys, you guys uploaded that talk um, from Print Hustlers. How many yeah, years ago was that? Now, one. yeah, I've I've watched that video. I don't know at least a dozen times <laughs> and uh profit first is huge um we've also recently done kind of a profit first type of thing where we've been we're in a second round of using paypal working capital uh in lieu of doing leases for things and it's been incredible we we got an embroidery machine that way and paid it off in 202 days is it and saved us over six thousand dollars when we compared it to the proposal we got from the leasing company we used historically to get our our automatic presses so uh that's Wait, been a big I, game on. changer too because I, I was i was just about to wrap up how does that work <laughs> is that just taking from the payments that you receive via Co paypal and they take little cuts out yeah correct so the way that the way that paypal working capital works is it takes a percentage which you pick from your incoming payments. Uh, since we process almost all of our online payments go through PayPal, uh, and because of that, we have a, a high revenue with PayPal. So they approved us for. Why, why uh, do you choose PayPal, by the way? Ease of use and mm -hmm. brand recognition, and honestly, okay. it's cheaper. Uh, it's and. Uh, and now that they have this working capital option, I'm, I'm a huge fan because the working capital loan is flat rate and it fluctuates based on the percentage of your incoming payments. So if you have a slow month, you don't have to stress out that you've got this big payment coming in that you've got to worry about like a got lease. It. And then also traditional leases, it's starting to just be outdated how they function. I mean even down to when when we got the leasing proposal 
back to purchase our embroidery machine at the beginning of 2020. Great timing. Uh, You know, it it has things like a $300 document fee on it. And then there's, you've got the principal and interest general like finance concept where PayPal working capital, it's flat rate. So you pay it, you pay a flat rate to take the loan and then it's paid off by a percentage again, that you, you choose that percentage on your incoming payments. And so, like I said, if, if you have a slow month, you're not stressing out because you have this big lease payment over your head. But if you have a great month, then you're paying it off faster. And so in our case, we were able to pay off a six-head embroidery machine in 200 days. Got it. Okay. That's pretty cool. The, um, I mean, that's, that, and that's not a cheap piece of equipment. I'm assuming and, this is for new or used. They just funnel you the account. They have your bank account info. Right. So, so that's it. So it's, it's similar to how a credit line works. It's just basically a chunk of money and you can use it how you right. want to use it. And they could take the more risk on you too, because they know your transaction history. Right. It's not right. like you're applying for anything. They mine it. And, and then for boom. us, for us, of course, you know, when we, when we founded King screen in 2006, we also created a PayPal account. So they can also look back and say, well, King Screens, we've got 15 years of history on them. And they can also look back, you know, again, like the the average revenue that we're bringing in and so on. And, And so the second draw that we did is we actually used that to consolidate some bad debt that we had left over and paid off some equipment that did have higher interest rates. And now those are mostly just gone period. Uh, and the, the overall premise of it for me personally really associates to the workings of profit first, because it, it takes that out immediately. Cause my, my personal issue is I can't have access to it. That's, that's historically been my problem. If I have the reinvestment, uh, yeah, because yeah, I, yeah. I will see I some sort of that problem. Yeah. It's like an, that's my other addiction. It's like, I see, I see some sort of opportunity yeah, I'll take it later or I'll a way to flip it. And right. yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to borrow from this to take, to do this opportunity and then I'll, I'll right. put it back. But then of right. course you never do. And so, and that gets you in trouble really quick. And it has in my life for sure. And so, the other benefit is you never even get it because PayPal takes their percentage before you even have access to whatever's coming in. Right. Yeah, I'm Damn, a big Mike fan Michalowicz, of it. Mike Wachowicz, I bet he, uh, you think he's on the PayPal board? Maybe. <laughs> the working capital board. <laughs> well, I think it's brilliant, and I think it's a real game changer. And Yeah, you know, I know Stripe has gotten into that too, and um, Square. Th- and Yeah, there's a few. And, yeah. you know, it's the loan fee is not chump change for them either. But in comparison, it's like, you know, the finance company was looking at you're, you're looking at like five years. And then once you consider all the all the interest on that, you know, we went from a lease that was going to be. Uh, let me think like 60 months. And once we calculated, and then all the fees, like there's just this $300 document fee and $20 for this processing. Do you remember or whatever. what the dollar savings was? 
not exactly, but it was it was over six thousand dollars when okay. when I sat down. If I when I sat down and I and I added it all up based on what my average monthly payments were going to be with the right. with the interest and and everything with the leasing company, and it, if I basically just made the minimum payments and I actually wrote the lease out sixty months, it was going to be uh, it it compared to the PayPal working capital, it was would have been over six thousand dollars more and sixty months. Got it. So right, we right. we not only saved you know we not only saved over six thousand dollars, we also paid the machine off in two hundred and two days. Right. And then PayPal comes calling because they want they want to give you more. <laughs> they want to juice you up and say you need another six head or Yeah. Um, Scott, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for, for just sharing everything here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thanks for I'm having definitely me. Definitely saying part two at some point when, uh, when we can get together. Guys, this is Scott Carnett out of King Screen. You guys can find him on King Screen on Instagram and be able to ask him more questions too. I know you did an awesome. Oh! <laughs> hey, it didn't come broken. <laughs> nope. I think that uh, was from the Steven, first batch. Steven and the others said that they <laughs> ship and they've come broken at the ankles. Um, i got to get in the squat rack. But thank you guys so much for listening to Printavo Printos' podcast. This is Scott Garnett from King Screen. We appreciate you. Thank you for always listening. We'll see you guys in the next episode. All right. Thanks for having me.